You're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. While statins continue to dominate the market, as with any drug, safety concerns are a factor. But what about non-statins? Today we'll explore the safety surrounding non-statin therapies. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. James McKenney, Professor Emeritus with Virginia Commonwealth University and member of the National Cholesterol Education Program, coordinating and executive committees from its inception in 1985, and member of the adult treatment panels. Dr. McKenney is the immediate past president of the National Lipid Association. Dr. McKenney, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for the invitation. I'd like to start with one of my favorite non-statins, and that is niacin. Niacin's been around for 50 years. It's been proven to do lots of great things. It's one of the only drugs that's been shown to actually decrease mortality. So let's talk about niacin. One of the concerns is that it may raise blood glucose. Is that really clinically significant? Yes, and we struggle with the same thing. It does raise blood sugar. It does so significantly and pretty persistently in most every study that you want to examine. The rate of increase appears to be modest, but uh, escalates over years of treatment in the order of about 4 milligrams to maybe as much as 10 milligrams per deciliter, but more in the order of 4 to 5 milligrams per deciliter over the course of a couple of years of treatment. The A1C may be increased at 0.3 on average in most of these studies. But it's a significant increase, especially since the diabetic patient is quite likely to have the kind of lipid profile. Right. I mean, they historically will have high triglycerides, low HDL, small dense LDL. Exactly the profile where a drug like this is indicated. And as you said, it's my choice too, first choice among the other choices in in these kinds of patients. So what if we raise their sugar a little bit if we're actually having a marked decrease in in cardiovascular events? I mean, that's the goal. It is. I think Dr. Kenner's reevaluation of the coronary drug project helps me answer that question. And he looked at patients, now this is post hoc analysis done some 30 years after the, the study was reported, but he did look at patients in that study with a fasting blood sugar of less than 95 and those with fastings greater than 126 in the diabetic range, some of whom became diabetic during the study on niacin. And you're exactly right. The risk reduction in those two populations were were almost exactly the same. However, the rate of events was much higher in the diabetic population. And so that's the dilemma. You may well produce a, a sizable market reduction in risk, but you may actually be increasing the rate as well. We have to understand that, but I don't know that what I just said is gospel. What is the current National Lipid Association's position on on the use of niacin and blood glucose? We actually advocate it. We think we should be using it. Obviously, if the patient is a diabetic, assume that most of those patients are going to be on some type of hypoglycemic therapy and that adjustments can be made, whether it's an insulin dose adjustment or an oral therapy dose adjustment to accommodate for any of the small changes that may occur with niacin. And we're all comfortable with that. I don't think that becomes a dilemma for most of us. How about just having them exercise a little more? Obviously, it's something we all should be doing and that we know that's going to improve the glucose management. The dilemma, I think, Dr. Caskell, the clinician, is the patient who's sort of in between this impaired fasting glucose tolerance, either one. 
and whether giving that patient, who also may have the same lipid abnormalities and an ideal candidate for a niacin-type product, whether to give that patient a niacin product. And I believe that actually many of us are reticent to do that. Obviously, you don't know what's going to happen before you start, so you make your very best judgment. As you said, we all believe that there is a risk reduction of some size on top of a statin or even by itself. And so if the patient qualifies because of the coronary risk for niacin therapy, we would advocate starting that, but obviously the patient is at higher risk of becoming diabetic and needs to be monitored for that. Let's talk a little bit about the safety of niacin and what kind of side effects we should be looking for in our patients. Overall, as you know, it's it's well tolerated except for the flushing, but what should we be looking out for in terms of side effects that uh, maybe doctors aren't that aware of? The flushing is a big one, of course, and, we, and every doctor is aware of it. I would certainly want to just say, while we're here on the topic, it shouldn't be a deal breaker. We can deal with that. It does require a bit of time to describe it to the patient. If the patient is simply alerted to the fact that it can occur and that it's not dangerous and that it will dissipate with time and there are things you can do to reduce it, I think that there are more people that would accept the treatment than not. But the question you asked, so in addition to increasing blood sugar, I don't believe that there's issues with hepatotoxicity until or unless we begin to use over-the-counter sustained release products at high doses, which we wouldn't advocate and, uh, and didn't advocate in this study. It does increase uric acid levels, so the person who has a history of gout uh, needs to be alerted. Uh, the physician needs to be aware of that. It can exacerbate uh, peptic ulcer disease. If patients have a past history, especially a recent history, you have to be cautious and probably should not use the drug. Those are the things that popped to my mind. Would you add any? Yeah, recently I had a patient that just had a cough that wouldn't go away from allergic rhinitis. So uh, we stopped his niacin and his cough went away. So, But that's rare. That's very rare. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. With me today is Dr. James McKenney, past immediate president of the National Lipid Association. Dr. McKenney, there was an article in JAMA about two weeks ago and talks about now looking at non-fasting triglycerides as a risk factor for uh, cardiovascular disease. Did you have a chance to look at that article? I didn't see it, but there has been an ongoing discussion by lipid specialists across the country who do research in this field about the value of postprandial triglycerides or postprandial lipemia as being a risk marker, and it, it does have a very high degree of predictability for coronary risk. I'm trying to ask every lipidologist I talk to because everyone out in the field is asking me what kind of guidelines we're going to come up with to determine, you know, who gets what. Any ideas? I know there aren't guidelines yet, but what should I be telling my constituents? Well, the, the basis of our recommendations currently, the ATP3 recommendations, is in a fasting triglyceride level, so I would really recommend that we stay with that until we really have this thing worked out better. Let's move on to fibrates. Fibrates also will lower triglycerides dramatically and raise HDL. How is the safety with fibrates, specifically phenofibrate? And let's, we don't really need to talk about gemfibrazole because the only place it's being used still is in the VA, <laughs> even though they've seen the data. That's an interesting statement you just made. I may want to come back and, and offer you some thoughts on it. But yeah, I do think that phenofibrate, certainly it's the most commonly used fibrate in the United States and heavily promoted. As you know, it was a part of the most recent trial called the FIELD trial in about 10,000 patients with type 2 diabetes over a course of five years. 
and the trial had lots of issues, mostly with patients who were assigned to phenylfibrate dropping out or being given statins, and patients on placebo also being given statins, so drop in and drop out, and I think it significantly compromised the study. Having said that, the study to me raises all kinds of issues and concerns and caused me to go back and look at, again, the literature. The task force spent a lot of time also looking at the evidence base and consulted with lots of experts to come up with its conclusions. And one of them has to do with the overall benefit in terms of reducing coronary event rates and coronary mortality. You know, across all of the studies, and there now have been, I'm going to say six off the top of my head, perhaps it's seven or eight, but something in that neighborhood, fibrate studies, randomized outcome trials, placebo-controlled, only one has shown a benefit in reducing mortality. All the rest have shown a neutral effect for the most part, or even a trend toward increasing. And that was the case with field. It bothers me a lot. The interesting thing to me, though, is that the coronary event rates, whether you're measuring non-fatal MI or revascularization procedures, etc., have all been reduced, are all reduced, and reduced significantly with fibrate therapy. Where do you stand in terms of deciding whether or not to put someone on, let's say they have a high triglyceride and low... HDL, and you have the choice of putting them on niacin or fibrate. Which one are you more comfortable with? Well, I think at this point, and you sort of said this in your introduction, niacin has the only evidence-based description of a reduction in coronary risk, uh, mortality as well as morbidity. So I think right now that's got to be the best recommendation for for risk reduction, it seems to me. But this this flies in the face of, I think, many people's, many health professionals' point of view and, and practice. The fibrates are commonly prescribed in this setting. I just call to question whether we totally understand what we're doing and whether we are safe in doing that. You brought up the field study, and some of the side effects in that study was there was an increased risk of thromboembolic disease using fibrates. Are we aware of the mechanism, and is it a concern? We're not aware of the mechanism. There was an increase in thromboembolic disease. It was one of only two fibrate studies to report that the old coronary drug project reported 30 years ago with clofibrate, atromid S, also reported increases in thromboembolic disease, as did field. But none of the others, none of the Jim Fibrazil uh, LOPA studies have reported that. The speculation, and I think I can, that would be the best characterization of the task force from the National Lipid Association on this topic, was it could possibly be related to the homocysteine increase. Phenylfibrate is well known to increase homocysteine on the order of 40 to 50 percent. And as you know, the, the literature, the evidence base on reducing homocysteine to reduce coronary risk has been dismissed. Yeah. And so we, I don't even know how to interpret what I just said, except that the blood level of homocysteine has increased 50 percent. And there has been a meta-analysis showing a relationship between venous thrombosis and homocysteine levels. So that, there has to be at least one possibility that we think about. I want to talk about another class of treatment for high triglycerides, and that would be fish oil, my favorite. And it's one of my favorites because I took a vow called the Hippocratic Oath, which says, first do no harm. And fish oil seems to fit with that quite nicely, that, you know, the worst thing I can cause is someone belching fish. But there are some people out there who think 
that high doses of fish oil can cause some bleeding abnormalities. I have not seen it clinically. I'm wondering what your position is on that. There has been that sort of room discussion or or clinical discussion about it. Uh, That's why we included uh, this as a part of the review from the National Lipid Association Safety Task Force. I would call your attention to the publication of our report, which was in the March supplement of the American Journal of Cardiology this year, And the very last paper in that was by Dr. Harris, who is a world's expert in this field, and he addressed exactly this topic. He found something in the order of 25 studies. Most of these were in patients who are electively going through some type of revascularization procedure. On that note, our time has come to an end, and I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. James McKenney. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals.